Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Welcome back to Vox Conversations. I'm Sean Ramos from host of Vox's Daily News podcast today explaining. I've been coming to you, telling you about all the people who are continuing the legacy of Ezra Klein with some fresh conversations. But you know what? Who doesn't love a throwback? Who doesn't love a greatest hit? So today, none other than your boy, Ezra Klein. He's going to be in conversation with Evan Osnos, you might know him, staff writer at The New Yorker and author of Joe Biden, The Life, The Run, and What Matters Now. They're going to discuss Joe Biden's political legacy and what we can expect from him in the next four years. It's another great conversation. I'm sure none of you will object to hearing. Here's Ezra and Evan. Evan Osnos, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Ezra. So congratulations on on writing a Joe Biden biography right under the wire here. Well, could have been a terrible idea. For the moment, it seems to have been a decent idea, but uh, uh, we'll we'll uh, we'll have to wait and see in retrospect. He's a, he's a hard guy in a way mm. to write about, which I think is something that comes through well in your book because he's really different over time. Mm-hmm. And, and so let, let me begin with this question. How would you describe who Joe Biden was politically in 1980? And how is that different from who he is politically in 2020? This is a really interesting one for me because I that sense of him not being static is one of the kind of real surprises for me and, and part of the driving mission behind this project. I mean, in 1980, Joe Biden was in the proportions of politicians kind of 80% ambition and 20% substance. And I mean, he got to the Senate after all in 1973. He was barely old enough to take his seat. And he gave an early interview, a kind of slightly catastrophic interview, in which he said to the interviewer, look, I think that elections really are more about personality and presentation than they are about substance. And that really established this like somewhat of a caricature, but not utterly unfair uh, of a kind of callow person. I mean, he just wasn't really fully evolved as a as a practitioner of government. And there was a couple of key moments when he he went into the Congress and kind of gave these long speeches about subjects he really didn't know much about. Uh, one was about oil wells in particular, and somebody called him out on it. And they said, Senator Biden, do you know anything about oil wells? And and he kind of got chastened by that and started to treat things a little more seriously. And I think that's then this beginning of a trend line that you see continuing up through the Obama presidency until we get to today. And we'll, we'll talk about that in more detail. But I think the one interesting thing is one of the things that happened 
in working with Obama is that he saw the difference in the way that Obama held sort of carried himself as a practitioner of government, the level of preparation, the level of discipline and self-control. And all of that began to actually change the way Biden did things. I mean, he he really did start to change some of his habits. I, I want to signpost that we're going to talk a fair amount about the past 10 years with Biden, because I agree with you that there is a level of change he undergoes in the Obama administration. It's very hard to track. It's much it, There's much more concrete moments to hold on to in his Senate career. So mm. it's easy as a pundit or a journalist to say, well, look, he voted for this and then he voted for that. And he, I think, becomes quite different in the Obama era. But mm-hmm. I want to go back even a little bit further here. Joe Biden, I think people know, um, and, and, and we can talk about it, the, the terrible tragedy that marks the beginning of his career in politics. He's elected to the Senate at 29. His wife and his daughter are killed in a car accident. And his two sons are injured, broken bones, brain damage. I mean, it's a level of horror that you almost can't stare in the face. But I want to actually start before that, because he runs for Senate at 29 yeah, with no real political experience. As far as I can tell, no animating issue. I just had this conversation with Sean Romstrom for, for today explaining. He was asking yeah. me, like, why does Biden run? Like, what, what mm-hmm. leads this guy to get into politics? And as much as I've read all the Biden books and talked to him, and I actually realize, like, I don't think anything does. But but you may have a better what, – what is your answer to that? Why does this guy run at 29? Well, I think it began for him – actually as a bit of a sense that he had a gift. And I know we sometimes joke, this would sound funny to people now, but remember, at at that point in his life, he was an extraordinary, he was considered an, an extraordinarily charismatic speaker and somebody who really could generate a lot of attention from the press, from the people he encountered. He had these great events. And I think that's precedes his decision to go into politics because And I know, you know, it's tempting of us to sort of roll our eyes at stories of him stuttering because that can feel like it's being used as a political prop. But it is a really big deal in terms of understanding his psychology, because he went from being a person, as he said to me, who could not speak and was constantly and roundly humiliated for that fact to being somebody who was suddenly because he was sort of he willed himself to be able to give these speeches by memorizing Declaration of Independence, all these things we've heard about. That created a kind of preternatural confidence in his ability to will himself into different situations. And that then becomes fused with this generational understanding of politics. He was running, remember, it's 1972. He was an anti-war candidate. He was running against a World War II vet. Joe Biden was running on the side of environmentalism. He was running for these issues that were all, to a man, reflective of, as his advertisements put it in the newspaper, Joe Biden understands what's happening now. And I think rather than sort of having a specific you know, philosophical motive, the way that Barack Obama obviously was like really believed in this transcendent possibility of politics as embodied by his own story, it was more that Joe Biden saw that he had the ability to get people excited about the issues, quote unquote. And in that moment, in that time, the issues of a 29-year-old Democrat were the things I was just talking about. And that was the initial thrust. And I think the fact that he doesn't have this single through line is part of the reason why on the positive side, it's meant that he has changed. On the negative side, it feeds that reputation for being kind of malleable and unmoored. 
But do you, do you think the issues at that time are a big motivator for him? Because the the other thread of his biography here is that he's not a member of the anti-war protest movement the way, say, John Kerry is. He's right. not. He says, I got into to politics for civil rights, but he's not a major civil rights marcher. He doesn't have any any distinguished history um, no. in, in that movement. He's not a distinguished student. He doesn't perform well in law school, right? He's not like an Obama who's, you know, the first um, African-American, you know, editor of the Harvard Law Review. Usually when you hear that kind of background, you're looking at a John Kerry or an Obama or someone like that who has uh, something marking them. Joe Biden's a good talker, um, but that's not that much, actually. I mean, I was a good talker in college. I didn't run for Senate. Uh, you know, Senate is a big jump. I mean, Delaware is a small, a small state, obviously. But I, I guess my question here, and, and I won't linger on this too long, but is how much you buy it or how much you think that Joe Biden at the beginning is just a rocket powered by ambition and status and a desire to prove himself in the world? I think that's actually exactly what it was. And I think if he was being completely candid with us, he would agree. And what I think is interesting, and you hit on sort of a deep truth about his career, which is the thing that attracted to him to this, it sounds paradoxical, but was not the ends of government, but it was the means of government. He was sort of fascinated by the sheer apparatus of politics, and that's what drew him. So it was this, yeah, it was personal ambition, but that could have driven him into business. It could have driven him into a lot of things. But there was something about the the transactional nature of politics. There was something about the, just the capacity to be at the center of the action. That was hugely animating for him. And that's the Joe Biden of, you know, 40 years ago. And it makes it all the more interesting to then begin to draw some of these contrasts to the person that he became. So you and I have talked for a piece I was writing, which is not yet published, although maybe by the time this is, uh, this has uh, aired at will. But I'm going to take the, I have the advantage over you of knowing what you think and you don't know everything that I think. But one of my views of, of Biden that I want to run by you here is that Biden comes into the Senate amidst, one, this extraordinary win as a young man, but then two, in this unbelievable moment of personal trauma and dissolution, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, his life functionally ends as he understood it. His future yeah. is cut off. And the Senate becomes in a very unusual way, he has an unusual experience in it, that the Senate wraps itself around him, his his ideological friends and his ideological adversaries, the leaders who may not have given this young man much notice. I mean, the whole place converges around Joe Biden to hold him, to, to, to convince him not to, to give up his seat, to, to bring him in, to make it easier for him to, to see his family. And so there's something about the way Joe Biden grows up in the Senate both because he came there so young, but also because the Senate and so many members of the Senate helped rebuild him as a person that I think is very distinctive in understanding his relationship with it as an institution and then his relationship with the sort of derided skills and career of being a politician, right? That I think he has a different relationship with that idea than is dominant in political culture. So I'd like to hear a little bit about how you understand what the Senate ends up meaning to Joe Biden and what his early experience in it is like. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Look, he he was kind of swaddled by the Senate in this moment of ultimate vulnerability. Here he is. He has won the seat, but not yet taken it. He is considering suicide. That's not a hyperbole. He is really undone. And he goes to see Mike Mansfield, who at that point was Democratic leader, who says to him, 
try it for six months. Come here and see what see what happens. Just try it for six months. And this was partly, you know, we want you to come, but it was also, and this is how his sister Valerie sort of frames it is, he didn't have the luxury of collapsing because he had these two little boys at home and he needed to figure out a way to carry on. And so he goes to the Senate. And by the way, there were other members in Congress who he talked to, particularly across the aisle. There was one guy in particular who had had a terrible accident in his family, had lost his wife, had lost children. And that guy said to him, you absolutely have to work. That's the only way you're going to survive this is work. And, and Biden kind of em- embraced that. And I think what you have is this kind of deep psychological imprint. And I'm not sort of over-medicalizing this. He would describe it the same way. That the, at, the, at the single most devastating moment of his life, this institution and the values that it stands for in its most, uh, you know, grandest self-narrative rescued him. And that became his notion of the Senate. It's it's part of the reason why he then goes on to like give the eulogies for everybody from Strom Thurmond to Frank Lautenberg. It was for him, there was no particular boundary between being a senator, being a human being, being a father, being a Democrat. These things were all of a piece. And that, of course, would would feed part of his image. And, and this strikes me as something where it really shapes the way he develops in self-image. So in that era particularly, and it's much stronger in that era than it is in this era, there is the idea of the master senator, the master legislator, the master yeah. deal maker, right? And you can Lyndon Johnson is one version of that from a, a leadership level, but I mean, you have this just world of your. I mean, some of them have really bad records on things like race, but you know, right. your Richard Russells and later Ted Kennedy will have a reputation like this. So he doesn't at that point. I'm um, at a certain period. Orrin Hatch will. There is there is something that is an understood thing that it means to be a truly great senator. Mm-hmm. And it has to do with a pluralistic, negotiating, compromise-oriented approach to politics. A you might disagree during the day, but you find ways to work together. And then you have bourbon, though the Biden does not drink at night. Mm-hmm. And Biden, in a way that I think is a little bit alien to understanding people in the Senate now. Even though he is notable for being a bit of a loud mouth and doing a lot of like talking in front of cameras, he is very affected mm-hmm. by this idea that the greatest thing to be is a truly great legislator. Yeah. Can you talk a bit about about that Senate and about that model that he tries to follow? It's, it, this is essential to understanding his mindset. I mean, he... He and by the way, you know, one of the times I've seen him most exercised with me is when he was talking to me about how he has watched the degradation of the Senate, by which he means the customs and the to use the dreaded word comedy and goodwill of the Senate. And he said in his most sort of ferocious moment, he said, I mean, they're turning it into the House, for God's sakes, which is like the deepest insult that a senator could possibly say to another senator. And what that is, is really a callback to that period, as you know, better than I do, very low polarization in America, you had a period in which you had constant examples of people across different party boundaries, geographical boundaries, all of these kind of sub caucuses within the different caucuses that were constantly coming up with deals. And it was especially true if you were the senator from the state of Delaware, which is in in cultural terms and literal terms suspended between the North and, and the South. I mean, here it is closer to New York City than it is to Raleigh, North Carolina, but it had Jim Crow laws in place 
so that, you know, if you were an African diplomat driving between Washington and New York, you you encountered segregated rest stops along the way. So in order to, to survive, to be a second term senator from Delaware, you lived in this state of constant negotiation between your liberal instincts and your conservative instincts. And there's one very memorable moment when he was given a high rating by a progressive organization for things like opposing the war and for being being on the right side of civil rights. And he disputed the characterization. He was like, this is a real problem for me because this is going to make people think I'm more conservative, uh, sorry, more progressive than I am. So you see him really struggling with how to sort of both, he loved that era because that era was what was what defined him. And I think he was, look, I, I will at this point defer to Barack Obama. I mean, President Obama said to me over the summer when I interviewed him about Biden, he said, look, I think it has been, and this is Obama's word, I think it has been painful for Joe to give up some of that notion and memory of what the Senate was because it was so important to him in his life. Desert Clown Show will return after a quick message from our sponsors. I want to talk a little bit about Biden's approach to pluralism. I think that if you listen to him closely, he speaks about disagreement in a different register than is true for most politicians today. Um, I would say most politicians today either don't believe in real disagreement with them, right? I think if you listen to, say, Bernie Sanders, the argument he is putting out is that almost everybody really is a democratic socialist. They either just don't know it yet or they've been fooled out of it by, you know, billionaires running television ads. If you listen to uh, a Donald Trump, it writes to people who disagree with him out of like being true citizens. Um, there are other people I'd say who it's like their views are just going to like win like in a in a in a final way, right? Like they will like beat the people they disagree with, and then those people have no power and they will wield power. And Joe Biden never talks like that. He doesn't seem to believe he can persuade people to like support him on everything. He doesn't believe he can beat them on everything. He has a very pluralistic view of politics. It's somehow his job to hold together like disagreement and yet make progress. Um, I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about that aspect of his political philosophy. It's, this is like absolutely essential to who he is. And I would say I, I agree with most of what you said, and I'll, I'll disagree with one part in a second, which you'll hear about, which is the persuasion piece of it. But I think, and you know, it's so interesting, this question of like the nature of disagreement and the legitimacy of disagreement is about more than just Joe Biden and Donald Trump right now. It is really about the core of our political culture and what ails it. And I, you know, I just happened to be on the phone this week, in fact, with Danielle Allen, who's a great Harvard scholar, who was the, the head of this. Been on the show many times. Exactly. And, you know, she was the head of this big American Academy of Arts and Sciences report about political culture. And she and I are talking about, you know, the obvious, which is where the hell do we go from here? And one of the things that she said that is so interesting is that part of sort of loving politics and believing that politics can improve people's lives is loving disagreement, embracing disagreement believing that it is core to what we are as an American system. And I'm, to state the obvious, Donald Trump believes that disagreement, he's used it as a weapon. He has tried to banish people from his party if they're loyal opposition. He has tried to literally criminalize his opponents if he thinks that they disagree with him. We don't need to belabor that point. Joe Biden has a very different perspective. He believes his very first thing that he said on the first day after the election was, I don't expect you all to agree with me. I know you didn't. I'm paraphrasing here, but, you know, the nature of that disagreement, I will be your president even if you disagree with me. The one area where 
where I would characterize it slightly differently is that he does believe in the power of persuasion. He doesn't believe that it is a moral crime to disagree with him, but he believes that essentially, given enough time, a person can can credibly change their view on an, on a matter if they reinterpret their own interests and the interests of their constituents. And that word is at the absolute core of his cal- of his sort of political toolbox. He talks about interests constantly. So that's the one area where I'd say, and you know, I will say something interesting about persuasion, Ezra, which is, and you mentioned it earlier, Joe Biden doesn't drink. We know that partly it's because he has a lot of alcoholism in his family. He also was not a part of the DC social life at all because he was getting on the train because he was a single father going back to Delaware. That's sort of where the whole Amtrak Joe cliche comes from. But so he was not doing some of the full apparatus of persuasion that was happening in Washington. And yet he is in many ways, it's most sort of, I think, zealous practitioner of the idea that you can change somebody's views in the right spirit. I'm going to agree on this and partially disagree on it, but <laughs> I'm not sure we actually we actually do 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 have a super different view. You're right about this part that he he believes people evolve, right? He doesn't believe people are fixed. Something that is distinctive about him, though, in in my reporting on him and and, and watching of him is that he never believes that he is going to convince you that his interests are yours in a political deal yes, or totally that right. you are wrong about your interests. So I remember I had a conversation um, with one of Biden's super senior policy advisors who's been with him for many years on foreign policy. And he was telling me that, that the thing that would make Biden the angriest, the absolute angriest, is if in a pre-brief before meeting with a, a foreign leader, is if his briefers came in and tried to tell Biden how to explain to the foreign leader why something was in their <laughs> self-interest. Like he hated that. <laughs> right. He wanted to know what they thought was in their self-interest. He wanted to know like how to appeal to that. But he never thought, and I think I would say this is actually a really big difference between him and Obama specifically. Mm-hmm. And like in a hundred ways, like I prefer Barack Obama's approach to politics and, sure. and find myself more aligned with it. But Obama would have Republicans and people in all the time. And he would like kind of tell them what was in their interest, like constantly. Like that was a way he talked and thought like that he could see the deal space. He understood what you had said before. And like, look, like you believe in X, Y, and Z. I have crafted a policy that includes X, Y, and Z. Like, come on, like, like let, let, let's get this done. And Biden like never assumes that level of sort of fixed deal-making space. Mm -hmm. He just always like, whatever you say you need, that's what you need. And he's going to try to work around it. But, but that's, I think, distinctive about him that he doesn't, he doesn't think in a deal that he's going to turn you or beat you. He just thinks he's going to find some way to make what he's doing work for you, given what you already believe you need. I think that's, that's correct. I totally agree with that. And look, and I think that exposes him to the risk, which, uh, which many of us know, which is that that can sometimes allow him to accept terms that are less ambitious than what somebody who is more adamant about their ability to persuade would go for. And part of that is the senatorial mindset, which is his belief is I might not get 100 percent of the way there on day one. I might get I might get a, I might get three quarters of the way there. And then tomorrow we're going to come back. We're going to talk about something else. You're going to throw me a bone and on and on it goes. And I can, you know, I can sort of imagine listeners hearing that and being like, that's exactly the problem of, of how we got into this mess is this kind of constant cascade of compromises. And I think that his view would be that to have a functioning government, you're going to have to lose some battles because you know that in the long run, you're going to win some battles. One thing that I think has made this easier for Biden to do is that 
in a fashion that makes him somewhat confusing to a lot of us who are not <laughs> this way, he's not super ideological. And right. his views over time are pretty mutable. Yeah. He doesn't seem to me to have a, a, an ideological project in the way a lot of people who enter politics do. And that can make him seem hollow in certain ways. But then but then later on, I think it can be an, an advantage. I mean, what do you think Biden has been ideologically over his career? The ideology of it does not conform to what we think of as the usual locations on the spectrum. The single, I think, abiding ideological fact is his belief in fairness. And you can define that in a lot of different ways, but it goes back to his to the very core of his understanding. I mean, like a lot of Joe Biden stories, <laughs> this one involves his mother or his father telling him something. But in this case, it happens to come from Val. And Val told me that his mom, his mom was like, a wonderfully ferocious and interesting character. And she said to them, listen, you are no better than anybody else and you are no worse than anybody else. And I that can sound sort of like the usual parental pablum, except that in their house, it was a big deal. I mean, his dad was a used car salesman who once was at, a, at an event in which the owner of the dealership sort of as a stunt threw a bucket of silver dollars out on the floor and then watched all of the employees scurry around and pick them up. And his dad was just kind of mortally offended by this and walked out of the thing and lost his job in the process. And there is a piece of Joe Biden. It's that combination of having a a little bit of a chip on your shoulder and then also believing that there's something philosophically offensive about lording over somebody else that runs through the entirety of his career. And I think that piece of it, which turns out to have at various moments, it's it, at various moments, it has policy relevance, like he really was actually beginning to think about the working class before everybody else was talking about it. A couple of, you know, we can talk about that in a minute. But um, that's the through line that carries him to today. And so I just want to draw something out in here that I think there's debates at different times of like, is Joe Biden really a conservative Democrat? Look where he was on the Rave Act. Look, he sponsored or co-sponsored a, ba- a Republican balanced budget amendment in the Senate? Or like, right. is he actually a liberal who's been on the right side of the Vietnam War and civil rights and opposed first Gulf War and, and, and so on? And my sense is it's actually not useful to try to answer this question. He's sort of neither, that he moves around with the center of the Democratic Party and where he thinks a country is. Yep. And sort of like he's tied to some guttural values he has, but he's not, he's not in one spot, um, like on an, like on an ideological spectrum. Do you think that's reasonable? Do you think that's fair? I think that's right. I mean, I actually, the way I, I, the other day I was just thinking about this and I decided that Joe Biden's ideology is centrism. He knows that people move. He thinks the country changes and he is determined to change with it. And he doesn't want to be at the he doesn't want to be at the frontier of the party. He doesn't imagine himself being a kind of moral pioneer for where the Democratic Party needs to go. He also doesn't want to be a laggard. And so he constantly tries to find that place. As somebody said to me who worked with him in the Obama administration very closely, he said, look, Joe Biden is in a way a perfect weather vane for where the center of the Democratic Party is. And I think you see that. One thing that I was thinking is like a if I had had more time, I was going to write this all differently about Joe Biden. I see you could tell a story of his evolution really well by the three presidential campaigns he's run. Mm. And like, I would gloss it. And I want to hear if you think this would be reasonable. Mm-hmm. Like there's 88, which is this really hollow campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, this really like, I'm a good talker, kind of young and handsome, you know, ends up in a total, total humiliating disaster mm-hmm. with a plagiarism scandal and everything else. Then there's 2008, which actually you gave me, I think, better language for thinking about, which is like, it's sort of Joe Biden is is 
putting aside the complexity of his legacy, like Joe Biden is Henry Kissinger, like Joe Biden as like the Democrat with the most experience on foreign affairs who can run most credibly against a Republican Party that has been beating Democrats on um, national security for eight years at that point or six years, I guess, at that point. And then there's 2020, which is a very different campaign. This Joe Biden is empath as party leader, as like humble um, tribune of the Obama era in American politics. Like it's a very different kind of thing. But I'd like to hear how you would, you know, like mark those. Yeah, I like that type of using the campaigns as a framework. And what I would describe is you could lay them on a spectrum of humility. The very first race was ludicrously audacious. You know, here he is. He runs for president, doesn't know why he's running, doesn't really have a particularly coherent policy platform, and it ends in tears. Then 2008, by that point, he's confident in being himself. He has kind of had the big jobs. He's been chairman of judiciary. He's been chairman of Senate Foreign Relations. He knows every foreign leader between Timbuktu and Vienna. He can like talk to you about any fact on the stage. He's also getting a little bit of control of himself in the sense that there was this moment in the debates when, you know, one of the setups was, you know, do you have the self-control to be able to know when to stop speaking? And he just said, yes. And it was like a big laugh line. So he's maturing as a political practitioner as well. And then you get to 2020. And it's a very different time in his life and the country's life. He has been through the second really devastating crucible, which was the death of Bo Biden in 2015. And that experience was, in the largest way, you can describe it as a punishing demonstration of the fates and of the idea that you really, as a person, no matter how powerful, how poor, how rich you are, you don't have that much control over your life. You don't, you're not really the author of your own destiny to any full extent. And you see that in him. It, he's a he's a, a humbler man. He's a more settled man. He's literally a little quieter. He listens more. Somebody who's worked with them in, in the Obama administration said to me, the death of Bo Biden killed off the arrogant side of Joe Biden. And I, I think there's some real deep truth to that. And he emerged as this more reflective person about himself and about the country. I want to hold on this, the 08 to 2020 difference, because I think it is the most underplayed thing about Joe Biden. I feel like there is some way in which like the political journalism world has not adequately conveyed just how different this guy is now. But everything that was true about him in 08 has basically become untrue about him. So, I mean, 08, you talk about that laugh line, right? Joe Biden traditionally is so in love with the sound of his own voice, is considered in some ways such a good speaker that he can never shut up and so he makes all these gaffes. But nevertheless, like considered like one of the truly great speakers. That's what's behind the 88 campaign. In 08, that's still like his view of the situation, more or less. By 2020, what is known about Joe Biden is that the most dangerous thing for him is speaking, right? He's actually become like, there's one version, the stutter has come back a little bit. Um, another, version is, another version is he's getting older, all the way to Republicans suggesting he's getting senile. But it's really not a rhetorically deft campaign. Like that is definitely not what is happening in, in, in 2020. Another thing in 08 is like there's a real sense of 
arrogance about what Joe Biden represents. Like he knows best. Like he represents like the 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 voice of of the Democratic Party of its like working class roots. You know, he's more experienced than anybody else on the stage. He'll do a better job. Again, 2020, what's notable is like how open he is to the other players on the stage, the relationship he forges with Bernie Sanders, how much he gives the left a voice in his campaign once he wins the primary through the the Biden-Bernie task forces. Like there is a real thing that happens in between here where this idea of like Joe Biden as like America's empathic, kindly uncle is absolutely alien to how I would have described Joe Biden in 08, where he was like America's sort of like arrogant foreign policy hand whose like idea was he could be as condescending to the Republicans on these issues as they were to Democrats before. Like I just I feel like I've never been able to fully communicate how how different this is. Um, but it is really different. Yeah. You know, what's funny to, is that, and I, I totally agree, there's a really a, some fascinating little moments that begin to evoke this. But for instance, I was interviewing Jill Biden, and she was talking about the decision when her husband was trying to decide whether to become the VP. And he had been invited by candidate Obama to be the vice president. And Joe Biden's first reaction was was like, I don't want that job. That's a no-name job. He actually asked people on his staff. He said, can any of you name Abraham Lincoln's vice president? So it was this kind of slightly ridiculously grandiose self-conception that, you know, he was too good for the vice presidency. And Jill Biden's response to him was, hold on a second. You believe that the Iraq war is a disaster, that it should be addressed. You believe in making progress on race in America. These are the things that brought you into politics. Um, You're having given the opportunity to be the vice president to the first African-American president in American history. And you're going to say no. And he did say no to the first invitation. And he said, yeah, but how am I going to work for somebody? I've been my own boss for 40 years. And her answer was grow up. And it, I, I think there's something fascinating. I say this, you know, look, anybody who's got a spouse will probably recognize this story that there is a way in which one spouse can say things to you like that, even if you are, a, you know, at that point, he's a whatever he is, 25 term senator uh, in, in the thick of his life. And that's part of this process of him then going into the administration and frankly, growing up. And I think part of that was coming to terms with the ways in which he still had a lot to learn and a lot of things to change, not just in terms of tactics and and practice, but really beginning to understand what it meant to be the, not just a senator, but actually the key person, the, the person at the very top who is the object of people's moral attention, you know, who they, they look to, to be a representative of our values. And one hopes at least pointing us in a direction, not just part of the chorus. So one of my rules in presidential journalism is that candidate books are way richer than they're given credit for. They're like these weirdly, they we we condescend towards these books so much, but I actually find they're almost always super illuminating about who, who people want to be in the world and how they want to be seen. So I'd read earlier in the cycle Biden's 08 book, which is interesting. It's like a good book about Biden. And then I just recently, a little bit to my regret, read um, Promise Me Dad, his more recent book about mm. Bo Biden's death. I wanted to talk to you about that book because I think it relates to all this really, really deeply. I did not expect how weird of a book that is. I mean, the parts about Bo Biden are heart-wrenching. I mean, it's just brutal to read. But there is so much hurt and defensiveness in that book about how the Obama administration, including Obama, clearly saw Hillary Clinton as the proper successor, not Joe Biden. 
and like so much defensiveness about how like Joe Biden could have run if he wanted to, but he didn't because of Bo, but like he definitely could have and he probably would have won or at least like he had some really new ideas. And I was really struck. Like he talks in that book about some of the things you're, you're discussing here about initially saying no to the vice presidency, think it'd be really like a, a job he would hate. He talks in the book about coming to really love Obama and admire him as a frankly more potent and wise political figure than Joe Biden himself is. And he's clearly hurt at the end of the Obama administration that Obama clearly loves him as a friend, but doesn't see him as the next as like the next guy. Uh, and I'd like to I'm sure you ran into this. I'd like to hear like how you think about him absorbing this over that four year period. I think that part of the reason why he was so offended by that was because I think on some level, Biden was kind of impressed with himself for having served Barack Obama as faithfully and, and, and loyally as he did. I mean, you know, as we know, the kind of oldest psychodrama in Washington is vice presidents kind of beginning to run for president from the West Wing and, and driving the president nuts. And he didn't do that. And it's, in some ways, it was totally off brand for him not to do that because, this, you know, everybody would have expected him to begin to do that. And part of the reason he didn't do that was because people didn't take the idea all that seriously. But the reality was, I think he really felt like I, I held up my end of the deal. And when the moment came, the younger, more intellectually adept, more credentialed partner on this team basically gave me the stiff arm and that hurts. And I think there was a, a pretty strong shadow cast by that. And I think there are various reasons. Look, I, I think President Obama had a genuine belief that Hillary Clinton was going to be a transcendent president the way that he was, that she would obviously make history, but also just came to it with the breadth and depth of experience that would allow her to be the natural heir. And what he underappreciated was the degree of resistance out there, deep, deep and, and very specific resistance to her. And I think Biden during that period, and particularly some of the people around Biden, like Mike Donilon, were, were pretty adamant that they believed that Biden had a stronger candidacy. And so I think there was a piece of that that really took a while for Biden to get over it. And I think there's also a piece of it here, which is he's somebody who has always had a high estimation of his political potential. And to find that this person who he respected so much had, you know, still a high perception, but perhaps not as big as it as it should have been bothered him. Yeah. And one thing that I also thought was interesting about the way he talks about it in there is that I don't know if when he wrote that book, he thought he would run. I can't quite read that. I can't read correctly if that book is a like a like an end to his time in politics or it was setting up the next one. I mean, it comes out in the Trump era, but it's clearly written a little bit before that. It's a it's a tricky book. But there is something about the way he experiences that, which I also think makes him rethink what his politics have been. Because if he ran he would have had to run as a successor to the Obama administration at the time when the Obama administration was just continuing through, right? Like he would have been like the direct lineage. And then I think that he sees that not quite work with Hillary Clinton. And there's something interesting, I think, about the way that then plays out in his 2020 campaign, which on the one hand, uh, one of my favorite jokes in the campaign was like, what is Biden running on? Like the Congressional Budget Office can't score. Like we should say thank you to Barack Obama more often, <laughs> um, which I, I was always a very funny line. And on the other hand, there is something that I think Biden begins to cotton on to that he can be he can run as the successor to Barack Obama's politics 
like his sort of spiritual sense of America as a growing moral force that you can hold together a fractious country through politics that is not really that present in Biden's previous um, political campaigns. It is not that present in Hillary Clinton's campaign at all. Um, and so like Biden doesn't really run. And I think this is like a really under-noticing. Biden doesn't run as the successor to Obama technocratically. Like that's never the part of Obama he connects to or represents. He runs as the successor to Obama spiritually and sort of like what Obama tried to say about America in 08. And like, I always feel like that's the thing he feels like Hillary Clinton missed. Um, and that a lot of people even missed about Obama. But like, that's a, it's an interesting through line between the two of them. And he says a bunch of different times in the book that he and Obama begin to realize they actually have a similar politics. And in the Obama administration, I think Pete Biden was often looked at fondly, but like the guy can't run a meeting. But in this way, it's true that like he understands something about Obama that now gets missed, which is like this sort of fundamental, like pluralistic optimism of Obamaism. Totally. And interestingly, one of Obama's advisors who was not the biggest Joe Biden fan in the White House was talking to me about why their partnership worked. And it was because they were like one of those weird bands in which you have two very different members, but they actually both have kind of perfect pitch of the same type in the sense that you know, they obviously came at it from completely different perspectives and they had different tools in their toolbox, but they basically believed that you could get people to be closer than they would be otherwise, full stop. And I think this goes back to the earlier point about interests. They used completely different approaches. You know, but I think Obama would find the notion of interests to be somewhat grubby and, and really sort of not adequately grounded in the moral grandeur of what politics can be. Joe Biden would say, nah, I'm not so sure about that. I think it's probably the same business in Baghdad as it is in Wilmington, as it is in Washington. And that's part of his part of his approach. So this gets to uh, a theme of tension, though, between the two that I think now gets a little buried. But I remember covering the White House, you know, in like the end of Obama's first term into his second term. And there was always a quiet echo of criticism coming out of the vice president's office that these guys just like don't know how to make a deal, that Obama doesn't spend enough time with members of Congress. And whether this came from Joe Biden exactly, I've never quite been sure, but it comes out of this like group. Um, there's a famous joke Obama tells at one of the White House correspondence dinners where he's, he says, um, you know, people are always asking me, why don't you, you get a drink with Mitch McConnell? Well, why don't you get a drink with Mitch McConnell? <laughs> Which is one of those jokes that in no yep. way did he mean as a joke. But like Biden will get a drink with Mitch McConnell and like hugs Mitch McConnell at different points. And Mitch McConnell draws at some point about Biden. Like, is this the only guy who knows how to make a deal over there? And there is this way that though I think the one criticism Biden really had of Obama is that Obama tried to logic his way through politics too much. There's something Biden feels about other people too. He doesn't like advisors who he thinks they just approach everything cerebrally. He wants to feel like they're they have some guttural sense of people and politics. And that like Biden, there is a process of politics that Biden thinks you have to go through of relationship building, of trust building, of negotiating that has to happen irrespective of whether or not of where you end up. Like even if you know where you should end up, you still have to go through the process. And that like Biden delights in the process in a way Obama simply doesn't. And that I think is actually like it is a part of how he thinks he would be a different president than Obama and also part of how he might actually be a different president from Obama. Uh, I'm curious how you you handicap that. It's You know what I think is fascinating in, is that both Obama and Biden, as somebody said to me at one point, the reason why their relationship worked 
is that both of them thought that he was the mentor to the other. And the flip side of that, of course, is what you were getting at, which is that each one could also be a little bit patronizing about the other. And in a way, that complemented them. Now, I think the reason why this then becomes really important in terms of, of Biden's conception of, of the deal, and I, you know, I, one of the things I draw attention to in the book is if you do a textual analysis of, of my interviews with him over the years, that phrase, in the deal, comes up over and over and over again. It's sort of been poisoned, unfortunately, by Donald Trump's use of the word deal. But for Biden, it is deeply felt. And I think what you what you begin to see is that it paid off for him in some very specific, concrete ways in this campaign. The big question a lot of people, of course, had was like, how did this guy go from being more or less dismissed by the political press and, and to some degree by the public in the very beginning of the campaign to then all of a sudden consolidating as fast as he did? And the reason he did uh, is as you mentioned briefly about Biden, about uh, Bernie Sanders saying, look, Joe Biden has always had a better relationship with me than I had with Hillary Clinton. He actually listens to what I'm talking about. And I heard versions of that from people all across the, the party spectrum, even people, progressive activists who said, look, I joined the task forces kind of uh, with low expectations. But to be perfectly honest, I was kind of shocked at the degree to which they were willing to listen to me. That doesn't mean that he then embraces their ideas whole hog. But I think we sometimes underappreciate the body language of politics. And the body language of politics can partly include the idea that somebody does not think that you are an idiot. And that is part of like Joe Biden's core philosophy is, I will never come into a room and treat you like an idiot. I think this then plays out in a really important way in the Democratic primary. So I, when I hear all this, like I completely discount these arguments from Joe Biden. I, I am much more on the Obama, like coolly technocratic side of the way I tend to operate in politics, which is great because I don't run for things and I just write articles and do podcasts. So it's fine. But I, you know, I have this very structural polarization oriented analysis of American politics and even the deals that Biden is able to, to, to cut during the Obama administration. And, and I wrote a bunch of articles praising that he was like a more significant vice president than people gave him credit for. Those deals also related to it was politically useful for Republicans to cut the deal with Biden and not Obama. I mean, Obama was also behind these deals, right? He's he's the president. He lets sort of like the Republicans play a good cop, bad cop game with him and him and Biden. And, totally. and that's a strategy on his side, too. So my view is that like this is going to dissolve, you know, like if Biden were the guy who's the president and now is a polarizing one, like there, there's no deals like this. And that may be true, by the way, uh, with Republicans. But Biden is able to build a relationship with Bernie Sanders that Bernie Sanders himself says in an interview with uh, one of your colleagues, Andrew Morantz at The New Yorker, says like it says like the reason this is going easier in the kind of primaries aftermath is that to be candid, um, Joe Biden and I have a better relationship than Hillary Clinton and I had. And people can do their own psychological analysis of why that is. But Biden just is able to unite the party coalitionally and strategically in a way where it's very clear his personal relationships and trust building matter. And then he's able to give genuine concessions to the left on top of that, like absorbing Elizabeth Warren's bills, the Biden-Bernie task forces. And to me, like there's Biden's campaign in terms of its rhetorical structure never impressed me. But his campaign in terms of its coalitional work and the way he was actually able to build relationships with people who, you know, he very easily could have taken a more antagonistic view towards, like that was really something. And it really did pay off. Like you really saw the fruits of it come out. Yeah. You know, Ron Klain said to me something really important. Ron Klain, of course, really important advisor to Biden. Um, 
he said, look, a lot of you guys dinged Biden in the debates for looking kind of passive and not fighting back and not throwing elbows. Well, you know what? He was adamant. It was strategic that at certain point along the way, if he was going to try to be the nominee of this party, he couldn't be, you know, surveying the wreckage of all of these wounded opponents. He needed a party that was capable of pulling itself together and summoning some kind of unified strength. And I think there is some truth to that, that at the moments when he was able to, um, he didn't he didn't extend the shiv quite as vigorously as he might have. Now, I think there's also a piece of this, you know, it, it was it happened to be his this point in his life where he's not going to do that. Um, but it turned out to be, to use the kind of more technocratic structural explanations, it turned out to be strategically astute to have done it that way. I will also, you know, on that kind of, you know, the point that you made about kind of where our heart lies with these guys. It's funny to me too. I'm sort of fascinated by Joe Biden. I think one of the reasons why I've been gravitating over the years to him as a character, as a person to write about, is precisely because he's so different than me. I mean, I am like fairly intro introverted. I don't, you know, this is why I generally spend my life sitting at a keyboard. You know, I get to the end of a day of talking to people and I'm like totally exhausted. And he is completely the opposite. And I find that as somebody, as a student of politics, I find that really interesting, why it is that you can have somebody like that that is able to be functional in that way. And I've always just kind of, just been purely interested in it from a persona perspective. The Ezra Klein Show will be back after a short break. What do you think about the Biden-McConnell relationship? Let's just like, how would you rate it if, as looks likely, McConnell is Senate Republican leader, you know, come the, the new Congress? Like, what do you think will happen? I don't believe that McConnell is going to wake up and have an epiphany, to use Joe Biden's term. I, I think that is some muscle memory talking of, a, of another period. However, I do think that all of the things we've been talking about, all of the ways in which Biden believes that the physics of politics are not quite what Obama always believed them to be, will matter. Part of it is, look, the truth is Joe Biden can say things to Mitch McConnell that Barack Obama couldn't say, crueler things, meaner things, tougher things. I mean, he can actually like, he can, he can be pretty blunt with the man. And Obama could too, but he was not, it was not his nature. He's more conscientious about maintaining a certain kind of rigorous plane of going high when the others go low. Joe Biden has no problem going low if need be when it comes to the kind of cloakroom dynamics. So what I would say is I don't think that you're going to wake up and have Mitch McConnell be um, meeting Joe Biden on the common ground of, you know, some sort of bland set of interests. But I think if the two of them want to go in and actually cut a deal for something like stimulus to help the country in a moment of abject failure, if you can conceptualize what Mitch McConnell's interests might be, you might get yourself a little closer than if you assume there's nothing. This is something I've been thinking about a lot, obviously. And one of the ways I've begun to uh, hypothesize it is that I think of every Democrat running, if you knew for certain Mitch McConnell is going to be Senate majority leader, you would say that Joe Biden is the candidate is the president who will maximize deal space with McConnell. Like he is the likeliest to get deals, the likeliest to get the biggest deals. The question is actually just going to be, do Democrats and and, and, and they're obviously cuts here, liberals, progressives, leftists, like, do they like what those deals end up being? Like, I think there is some possibility that Joe Biden really is able to cut like a significant number of deals, not an FDR style presidency, but, but more than nothing, more than second term Obama, for instance. But Joe Biden will take deals that 
people on the left may not like. And so that's going to be, I think, the really interesting tension of this, because I think Joe Biden sees it, and this was true for Obama to some degree too, but it's very true for Biden. Joe Biden sees it as a separate level of accomplishment to just show that pluralistic deal-making negotiation-style politics still works. And so to like be able to come out with a deal is itself like part of the payoff for him. And I think he also is less entranced by the idea of the global deal, the grand bargain, the solution of all solutions. That's not how he sees politics working. He sees this as you get a few things right, you you may get a few things wrong, but you show up again the next day. And I think that means what we should expect is that there are going to be a lot of days when Democrats are going to be saying, what the hell did Joe Biden just give away? And then there will be days where they say, huh, I didn't actually think that he could get that out of them. I sometimes go back to the fact that it was Biden in 2009 who persuaded Arlen Specter to change parties. It was Biden in 2009 who got basically the three key votes on the stimulus bill by just like working the phone and hanging out in the Senate gym. I mean, the locker room. So in a way, you know, we're at this moment of obviously like acute polarization, divided politics in a way that's that we've we haven't contended with in our lifetimes. And what do we have? We have a president who believes that if you show up and you stand in somebody's physical space for a while, that you might be able to erode some of the chemistry of alienation. I'm not sure that's a bad idea. I think it may, you know, bad or good, right? It's like it's the only play. Um, <laughs> I do think that Biden, who was the key player on turning Arlen Specter, that's also just like an interesting bit in this. Like, I sometimes wonder about like how much Lisa Murkowski really enjoys being a Republican these days. (laughs) And I don't I don't know the answer to that. Um, Or Mitt Romney. I mean, it's, you know, there's a long story. Yeah. Could Biden make deals with Mitt Romney? It doesn't seem impossible to me. Um, He, you know, so this is a point Biden makes, right? Mitch McConnell as majority leader, he'll control the floor. But it's also um, if you can pick off some Republicans on key things like that also does matter. And I think Biden's view of this, the way he put it to me once is, and this actually turns out to be a line he uses, he's like, I never, ever expect anybody to appear in the second edition of Profiles and Courage. Like what I'm good at as a negotiator, and I'm paraphrasing him here, he's like, what I'm good at as as a negotiator is being able to see what it is they need and try to help them get that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So who knows? You know what I think is funny? I mean, in a way, you could say that that in a way, Joe Biden doesn't subscribe to the great man theory of history. He subscribes to the pretty good man theory of history. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's something to that. That's actually a a good segue to the last thing I want to cover here, which is foreign policy. So a lot of Biden's background is on foreign policy. He was chair of Senate Foreign Relations for, for quite some time. He has a lot of confidence on those issues. He's been on all sides of those issues. Um, He ends up voting for the Iraq war, but he had another proposal that got like he got his legs cut out from under him by Gephardt in the House, which and his proposal was tougher and was, I think, more oriented towards trying to get Bush a little tied up in the UN. He was against the first Gulf War. He was very for the Kosovo intervention. Like, how do you understand Joe Biden on foreign policy now? And how do you think he's changed over time? I do think there's a trend line that we see, which is that he has become more conservative about the application of American force. If you go back, he was, even though he voted against the first Gulf War, he was a pretty active proponent of bombing in the Balkans. And that became something he was really proud of, having, you know, essentially protected civilians. Then you get to the war in Iraq, which was 
for so many people, probably more than they even acknowledge, was the, you know, the central failure of American governance of his generation. And uh, I mean, I could add other things like mass incarceration, but if we're talking foreign policy, it's got to be that. And what you see since then is a much more determined effort to pull back the use of American force and the national security state. One of the reasons he was, he was opposed to the surge. He was um, wary of the bin Laden raid, as we all know. And part of that was not for sort of philosophical reasons. He believed that the intelligence was not as hard as he wanted it to be. And he worried about the political outcome if he did it. He said, you're going to be a first term president if this goes bad. So I think what you see consistent, he was also opposed to a U.S. intervention in Libya. So that has become the kind of, you know, if we're doing this in terms of like, you know, phases of Elvis's career in Joe Biden's career, the sort of late Elvis phase is he's not that much of a fan of projecting American force out into the world. And I think that's important to keep in mind uh, as we think about his role as commander in chief. And he becomes and this is a role he ends up playing in the Obama administration. He has a for a Democrat, an interestingly non-deferential relationship to the military. And he's at odds, of course, with Robert Gates, his defense secretary. But just in general, a lot of Democrats have a tendency to defer to the military because they want to be seen as strong in national security. And and Biden doesn't and is often, I think, a little bit mistrustful of the military's political incentives and the way the generals sort of use their leverage to, to, to push certain ideas. How do you how do you read that part of uh, him? I'd say that is, you know, one one explanation is concrete and the other is speculative. The speculative explanation is that he actually this isn't one of the ways in which he is a product of the Vietnam generation, but did not go to Vietnam. I mean, that was not his he was opposed to the war. And I think that, you know, in in some ways made an imprint on him. I think the other thing that's important here is he has a lot of respect for the military. He sort of uses some of the what we usually sort of expect from politicians. His son, Bo, after all, was in the military, um, served overseas. But the later Biden gets into his career, the less he makes those routine moments of deference. And in the Obama administration, this is the concrete explanation. I happen to know, partly because President Obama talked about it to me, that basically he put Biden up to play a role in some of these debates. He wanted Biden to be the dove and to be the dove who would open up space in the room, piss off the generals, frankly, and see what happens, because that's the only way we're going to have a robust debate. And that's what he did. It's part of the reasons why his relationship with Bob Gates was so was so toxic. It's worth pointing out here because I think people really remember Gates's criticism. Gates has made a point recently of coming out and saying emphatically, like, yeah, I have my troubles with Joe Biden, but he is uh, infinitely more qualified than than Donald Trump. And I, I think there's some meaning in there. One thing that has always struck me uh, about Biden is that most politicians have somewhere where they're thinking centers. And he's often centers in foreign policy. Um, more so, I think he's credit for, I think the the public reputation of him is like Lunchbox Joe, you know, like this sort of working class guy from Scranton. And there's something to that. And, and he does think about it. But I've heard him ask questions. I've asked him questions. I, I remember a question that I was on a call with him on uh, during the George Floyd protests, where the way he started his answer about the George Floyd protest was to say that most people aren't thinking about something, but look at what this is doing to the way the world sees us. Look at the damage it's doing to our, our, our relationships in the world. That there's something about he, I think, does have a very deep idea of America as a moral world leader and that a very important role of foreign policy in the American presidency is to uphold America's role in the world in a symbolic way, not just a, like an, a, an operational way that I don't exactly know how it will play out in his 
presidency, but but seems important. He's very connected to that. And it's like an equity he really tries to protect in his, in his policymaking. I think it affects him when it's seen that we're leaving people to tyranny somewhere else or to um, horrors or slaughter or genocide, uh, although he was against a Libya intervention, as I remember. Um, but at the same time, like he really thinks about that. And that, that idea that you're really trying to protect America's moral leadership in the world strikes me as important to understanding him. Yeah, I think it is, especially now where obviously, you know, he would be coming in at a moment in which not just the credibility of the United States is diminished, but essentially the credibility of the liberal Western order. And I think that creates an opportunity and then also a potential liability. The opportunity is he goes out and begins to try to sort of a project of restoration. And he can do that. He's comfortable in he's comfortable in Europe. He is comfortable in Asia. He's he's, he's happy to make that case essentially for the fact that uh, that it's not over, that we still believe in these values and the very presence of him having deposed a one-term authoritarian American president is evidence of that. The problem and the danger, I think, for him is the world has changed in some profound ways in four years. And it's not just Donald Trump. It's that there has been this splintering geographically in terms of leadership and influence. And he's going to have to figure out what role does the United States play in that? Because it's not enough to come in and just announce one's exceptionalism. You now have to come in and figure out how do you fit into these more complicated dynamics with China being its own center of gravity. And I think there are people around him, like Jake Sullivan, for instance, who are thinking very much in those terms of what would a modern American democratic agenda look like. Um, but it's it remains to be seen. It's going to have to be one of their big one of their big projects. All right. I think that's a good place to, to leave it. Um, you've been on the show a number of times before, so you've always had, you faced the the three books question before. Um, what are three Biden-related books? Do you know of books that he loves or, or, or are there books that you found helpful to understanding him? Well, I can give you three books that are helpful to understanding this period. And, I, you know, he's not a person like He's not a person like Obama who is constantly referencing through the bibliography of his mind. So it's a slightly different scenario. But I think of the three books that come to mind to me are very much on my mind right now. Uh, one of them is a classic that people, I think, need to dust off, which is Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman. Oh, it's so good. Amazing, right? Came out in 1985 and just anticipated the 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 ways in which the technology of television and everything that followed was changing us politically. The other book that I really loved was called The Field of Blood by Joanne Freeman. And it is a history of antebellum Congress and the sheer physical violence that overtook Congress in the years before the Civil War. I, I'm drawing on it for a piece that'll be in The New Yorker right after the uh, just coming up in the days ahead. But it's re uh, sort of hauntingly um, relevant. And then the third thing is a book called The Ideas That Made America by a scholar named Jennifer Ratner Rosenhagen, which is this incredibly elegant um, distillation of, of a huge number of complicated intellectual histories into a really impressive briefing, an essay, an argument about the nature of, of why we think the way we think. Evan Osnos, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks, Ezra. Thank you to Evan for being here. Thank you to Roger Karma for researching, Jeffrey Geld for producing the Ezra Klein Shows Vox Media podcast production.
All right, that does it for today. We are back with a new episode of Vox Conversations later this week. Let us know what you think of the show. Send an email to voxconversations at vox.com. And if you want to leave a rating, a review on whatever app you use to listen to the show, do that too. Thanks so much.